Clint Pennick is the head of Pennick Lab at Kennesaw State University. He's a biologist who studies social insects. This is Clint Pennick. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I, I'm here with uh, Clint Pennick. Uh, sir, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I, I've read a few things about you, but one of the first things I saw was your Twitter, uh, Twitter bio where you said you're a former punk musician, current ant scientist. I, I, I imagine you're one of the few people in the world who can claim that. Uh, what what happened, buddy? <laughs> How did this 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 turn? Were, were you a serious punk musician at any point, or? Uh... Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was. So uh, you know, a lot of people who study bugs, like I do now, have these stories when that you know when they were kids that they had a bug net and they could identify every butterfly, and they were just crazy about insects, like from early on, and they just never quit. And that was not me. Um, When I was a kid, I was much more interested in skateboarding and punk music. Um, But I did. So the only sort of glimmer that I was going to have a career studying insects was that when I started my first punk band, I was in middle school, uh, I I named it the Army Ants. That was the name. (laughs) And so there must have been something in my childhood that I was drawn to ants, but I didn't really pick up the research side of it until much later. But yeah, all through um, all through college, actually, I toured with a punk band. We're, we're like a hardcore punk band with um, you know screaming all the words and one minute songs. And we were on a record label, put out some albums. And I, what I, I call it um, a, a medium a medium successful punk band. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So we were yeah we toured and we were called Kids Like Us. And you can still listen to the music; it's still out there. Wow. So do, do all your former punk friends look at you now and like, man, you, you sold out, you, you got into ants. <laughs> oh, no, no, they love it. And uh, it's actually interesting. You know, you might think that like the people who are like recording these like Neanderthal kind of style songs of just screaming, um, a, a large percentage of them that I know actually have turned out to be scientists, which is kind of strange. But yeah. some of the yeah, some of my best friends from touring and, and people who um, filled in with our band or went on tour with us are now also scientists. One's a neuroscientist and um, others are doctors. And so it was, it was kind of an interesting group to be around. Yeah, I wonder if there's something to that. Maybe the the punk sort of questioning things, and but a very loose connection. How how did you decide ants? Like, where did this come to you? So yeah, I think there was something early on because I was I was interested in ants. I watched documentaries about them when I was a kid, and I thought they were pretty cool. And and I did like watching the ants in my yard. Um, but uh, I really tr- uh, it really clicked for me when I was in college as an undergrad. And I just happened to have my favorite professor was an ant biologist. And his name's Walter Chinkle. And he's, he's well known now as the person who invented this method where he melts metal and pours it into ant nest to create a cast and then uses that to study their architecture. Um, and so he's gotten a lot, of, um, a lot of recognition for that. But he is also the world expert on fire ants, um, so arguably our, our worst pest here in the Southeast. And, uh, and so I, I took every class that Walter taught. And when there weren't any more classes that I could take, I just went to his office and said, hey, can I, can I, do, can I work in your lab? Can I do something else with you? And so that's how it started for me. Um, he accepted me as an undergraduate student in his lab and I started studying fire ants. 
Okay. Okay. So there are a number of things I want to ask you here. And I, I want to ask how you, you, you started your lab, Penic Lab, and, and the sorts of things you do. This is a real basic question I just wanted to ask right off the bat. Why are ants everywhere? Like they're in the jungle, they're in my backyard, they're in my kitchen. Why? Where do these things just spawn out of? Yeah, they are insanely successful. And, and we say that in, in, a, in an ecological sense. So ants are successful in that they're, they're very diverse. So there's probably estimates range up to 20,000 species of them, which is four times the number of mammal species. Um, so, so there's a lot of different types of ants. They're also abundant. Um, E.O. Wilson always gives the statistics that if you take all of the humans in, world, in the world and put us on one side of a scale and all the ants on the other side of a scale, it about evens out. So just in terms of weight, there's you know, so, so many ants on earth. And I think a large part of that has to do with their social nature. So what we've been finding in biology in general is that species that become highly social are able to deal with environmental stress better than species that are less social. And so what that means is that, you know, stressful habitats that, um, you know, a typical species might have trouble with, ant species have a whole colony that they can depend on and fall back on. And so they're able to live in really highly stressful desert environments. Um, they can live um, in cities, really highly urban environments, which is where I do a lot of my research. Uh, and they can thrive in all of these areas. Basically, the only places that ants are not are places that are extremely cold, where very few insects, if any, can survive. So like the um, like Antarctica, there's no ants. Uh, and then also a few islands. So there's some islands that ants never made it to. Famously, the Hawaiian islands never had ants. But then, of course, we accidentally brought them there. And so now ants have clearly dominated Hawaii. But my, my first and only trip to Hawaii so far was... Um, it, the, the trails I hiked were just covered with, with an invasive ants there. So yeah, ants do quite well. And I think a lot of it comes down to their social, uh, their social nature. And you study in particular social insects, is that right? Yeah. So my, my specialty is, is ants most specifically, but I'm interested in social insects in general and how sociality evolves. So it evolved at least once in ants, probably once and all ants that we know of are social. Uh, it's evolved in wasps, like paper wasps, and we do some research in my lab on wasps. It evolved in termites. Um, termites, in fact, uh, you might be interested to, to learn, are actually cockroaches. They literally um, are, are in the group of cockroaches, but they just evolved to be social cockroaches. And they look quite different from the cockroaches that get in your house, but they're, they're quite uh, closely related. And then in bees, uh, sociality has evolved multiple times. So there's a lot of people who are interested in that question. Why did sociality evolve so, so many times in bees and ants and wasps? This group that they're, they're all related to each other in this group called the Hymenoptera. Um, and so in my lab, we do research on uh, basically all of these. I've done work with termites and wasps and bees as well as ants. But, but in general, that's my, uh, my main focus is trying to understand the evolution of sociality uh, and why social, social species have become so successful. Um, and, and so you mentioned cockroaches in there, but are, there are, of course, then like non-social or anti-social, I don't know how you'd say it, insects. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a spectrum. So it goes from, yeah, I mean, you might call this probably some, some species of insects that are truly antisocial and that they avoid um, other members of their same species when they run into them. And then you have levels where, you know, most, I, I, practically all animals are at social at one point in their life and the fact that they have to mate. 
So um, at least for you know a brief second, a male and a female have to get together um, and share some intimacy. And so that's, that's the minimum level of sociality for most species that reproduce um, sexually. But then you can have things like, like cockroaches are a great example. They're not, um, they're not completely non-social, they, they form groups. And they, they tend to prefer to be in groups. And so people have done experiments. Um, you can put um, little um, cups out and you can put cockroaches under some and then leave other ones without cockroaches. And then if you introduce another cockroach into the environment, they choose to live with the other cockroaches. Hmm. So they're not um, as social as, what, as an ant colony or a bee colony, but they do have social tendencies where they aggregate together. Um, where you really see this big switch in sociality um, and, and when we talk about social insects, what we're really talking about, our, our jargon term for it is eusocial insects. So that's, it's spelled E-U social, eusocial. Okay. And, and that is this really curious case from an evolutionary standpoint. And where not only do all of these individuals in the same species live together, but the vast majority of them actually give up reproduction. So they, they decide not to reproduce. And instead, they take care of the offspring or babies from another member of their same species. And so this is what youth sociality is. And it's a, like I said, it's been um, a, a tricky question in evolutionary biology. There's a long section of it in Darwin's On the Origin of Species. Uh, but, you know, how does this evolve? Um, technically, the way we think about evolution is that whoever leaves the most offspring is the most fit. They have the highest fitness. And right. so everything in evolution is about having as many babies as possible that make it on to have their own babies and continue down the line. And so it's, it's, um, it's sort of this tricky question of how this evolved in social insects and how it evolved so many times where it seems completely antithetical to evolutionary theory that these workers would give up reproduction to help their mother, uh, to help her mother and raise their mother's offspring. So then why do they do it? Uh, so Darwin actually, you know, already had pretty, like, like almost everything, Darwin always had a pretty good idea about how this happened. Um, but it, it really became solidified um, it, uh, much later um, through work of people like Bill Hamilton, um, who, who created this thing called Hamilton's Rule and Kin Selection Theory. But uh, basically what it hinges on is the fact that in most of these eusocial species, if, if not basically all of them, uh, it's not just a random group of individuals of a species that get together. It's actually a family group. And so um, the queen in these colonies uh, shares a lot of genes with the workers. And so the workers could either, you know, go off on their own and have their own offspring and then try to raise them. Um, or if they just stay with their queen, with, uh, they, uh, with their mother, basically, they can raise the offspring she produces and they're actually highly related to those offspring. So in human societies, and when, if you have brothers and sisters and you have the same parents, we, have, we share 50% of the same genes. So there is some advantage and we call this kin selection. So you're, you're not selecting for your own fitness, but you're selecting for the fitness of your kin who you share genes with. So there is some evidence that, yeah, um, you know, within families, even in humans, if we help, you know, our sister raise their babies and, and decide not to have her own babies, if we help her have two more or three more babies successfully, that's the same from an evolutionary standpoint if we, as if we had one of our own babies. Um, that shared really 50% of our genes as well. Um, and so um, and ants and, and bees and wasps, they have a tricky thing 
um, which gets a little mathy, but the way that they reproduce um, is that um, they actually, they have what's called haplodiploid sex determination. And so if they lay an egg that is haploid, which means it has, it's unfertilized and has half the number of chromosomes as a typical egg, it develops into a male. And if they fertilize an egg, and it, it, um, then it develops into a female. So in ant societies, all the workers are female. Same for bees and wasps. They're all female. And the queens can actually choose. The, they, they have the choice whether they want to lay an egg that's going to be a male or a female. Um, because They have this little valve, and they can open it up, and it will let sperm in. And if it fertilizes an egg, then it's a female. Um, but then through some somewhat complex math, um, what that means is that um, instead of being 50-50 related to their sisters in an ant colony like we, we are in humans, um, in ants, they're actually 75% related to their sisters. So they actually share more genes with their sisters than they would share with their own offspring. And so this seems to be maybe one of the explanatory factors for why sociality has evolved so many times in ants, bees, and wasps. Um, it's because that they just share more genes and so this kin selection mechanism can kick in. And why do in, in bees and in ants, why do the males seem to get uh, kind of shafted here where they, they're basically used for reproduction or, or is that a misstatement? Yeah, so that's exactly true. So males live a pitiful life in an ant colony and, and you can tell the males, they don't, they don't look like your typical ant. They have wings. Um, they typically have really small heads because they don't have a lot of brain capacity. They don't really need to think very much. Um, they don't have to feed themselves the, you know, they're, they're completely raised by their sisters and they're only produced just right before the mating season. So they're only in the colony for a brief time each year. And then when the mating season happens, they leave the colony, they go out and search for a new queen um, and they mate and then they die. Uh, and, and so their life is all just, you know, <laughs> laser focused on sex. That's all it's about. And so they have sex and then that's it. And they don't contribute. Um, and so there's probably a, a number of reasons why um, social insects have evolved where they don't have males. It's not all species. So this is only found in uh, the social hymenoptera. So bees, wasps, and ants. In termites, actually, the workers are male and female. So it's about 50-50. And termites, in addition to queens, also have kings. So they have a completely different system. Um, but in the groups like the ants, bees, and wasps, one of the, one of the primary factors that, that probably led to females being the main worker cast is that females are the only ones who have a stinger. Um, and that's because the sting in bees and wasps evolved from this structure um, uh, that was originally for laying eggs. And so males don't have that structure. So it's only the females in these groups that can sting. And a lot of the early, even the early ants um, and the early wasps they depended on hunting and being able to paralyze prey in order to um, feed their colonies. And so males aren't super useful if they don't have a stinger and can't do that. Okay. I, that makes sense. But it, yeah, as you said, it is a pitiful life for, for a male in these, these <laughs> Maybe colonies. pitiful. Maybe, maybe it's the ideal, right? You just get fed by your you know, women all the time and then you have sex and that's it. That's your yeah, life. and then you die. I no. mean, it's, the, the, the Buddha would not approve, but I suppose, yeah. <laughs> Um, one of the things you touched on where the sort of the male ants have this shrunken brain capacity, um, and this is a, a question that I, I sort of posed to you in my initial email to you about, um, Chomsky, who has an idea about the, the reproductive success of insects. It's possible that they're, 
the because insects I mean, relative to humans are the least intelligent sort of species and yet they're the most reproductively successful it's possible that maybe intelligence is is overrated as, as an evolutionary advantage or maybe if you were smarter the 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 male ant wouldn't be willing to put up with this pitiful life uh do you have any thoughts on that yeah, I think, you know, intelligence, of course, is relative. And compared to a lot of species, social insects are, are quite sophisticated. And so, you know, people do research on honeybees, for example. Um, you can classically condition them just like Pavlov's dogs. So you can train them on all kinds of different odors. They have um, a really high learning capacity. They, um, in some cases, people have actually trained bee colonies to sniff out bombs just as well, if not better than dogs can do it. And so I think we have an assumption that a small brain is a, a not intelligent brain, mm -hmm. but the brain of an ant and the brain of a bee is actually quite sophisticated. There's a quote that I love that is actually from Charles Darwin. Um, and, and I'll paraphrase it here, but it's something like the brain of an ant is the most marvelous atom of matter on earth, uh, perhaps even more marvelous than the human brain. Uh, and what he means by that is that, you know, basically an ant has a brain that is, you know, can fit on the head of a pin. It's this tiny little bit of neural tissue. Yet with that, they're able to do so many of the things that we, we think of as complex. So they can feed themselves, they can leave their nest, they can hunt, they can speak in a language, they use pheromone language in ant colonies, and they, they can memorize hundreds of different scents. Um, they can navigate complex environments and walk really far away from home and then find their way back. Some of them can use the sun for navigation. Um, there's just all of these sophisticated things that an ant can do, and they're doing it with so much less brain matter than we have. Um, and so I, I think, you know, on one side of it, to one side of that question, I would say is that, well, I mean, to count insects as unintelligent is, is in some ways not fair. They're pretty intelligent for what they are. But I also get the point that they aren't, you know, the same intelligence level as humans. Um, and, and so there is something to be said that you don't need necessarily need to have this brilliance in order to be successful ecologically. Uh, and long after humans are gone, my guess is that there's going to be ants that exist and dominate the earth. Um, the, the same would not be true for us. If ants were wiped off the earth tomorrow, I don't think humans would make it too much longer. We depend on them for so much just for soil health and um, all kinds of other things that um, I, I think would be pretty difficult for us to go on without ants. But they are, most of them would be quite happy to go on without us. Well, well, that's okay. So that's something I wanted to ask you about then, because I, I've heard talk of, you know, bees are, are dying, or maybe it's like honeybees or something like that. And if we get if we lose the bees, then e ecologically, we're going to be thrown into chaos. Um, is that true? Is that just because of pollination or um, what's the deal there? Yeah, the bee story is somewhat complex because it started with um, beekeepers, commercial beekeepers having uh, like 50% losses in their colonies each year. Um, and so it, it's this weird thing because we think about bees as being a wild species but what we're really talking about is livestock here, right? If someone came out and said 50% of the cows died one year, that'd be alarming. And I think we'd be you know, concerned about eating beef and, and helping farmers, but that we wouldn't necessarily be worried about like natural spaces. Um, and, and so 
Um, so there had been a lot of research and they were hoping to find like maybe there was like one disease that was causing this that they, they could cure. It turns out to be a more complex issue. But by and large, uh, the scientists and, uh, and beekeepers have kind of worked together and found ways to at least mitigate the worst effects of what they were calling, it was called colony collapse disorder. And so I think it's harder to be a beekeeper today. There's just more diseases that they have to deal with. Uh, but it's, it's right now it's manageable. So they're able to produce enough new colonies every year to replace the ones they lost. Mm. Now, where scientists like me get concerned is um, it's not just all about the honeybees. Uh, so like I said, honeybees and, uh, you know, where I live in, you know, in North America in the United States, they're not native. We have no native honeybee. Honeybees came over with Europeans, uh, mostly because they kept them to produce honey and they escaped and there's now a lot of what we call feral colonies and I'm happy to have honeybees, they're cool. Um, we work with them in my lab as well. Uh, but, but our ecosystem doesn't necessarily need honeybees. It, it, was not, it did not evolve with honeybees. And so what people like me are more concerned about is the loss of our native pollinators. And that's, it's, it's in some ways a related issue, but it, the factors driving it are quite separate. Uh, and, and it largely has to do with habitat loss. And so I think, you know, if you went back 100 years into the United States and looked at a farm field, it would be unrecognizable to a farm field today. So 100 years ago, you would have probably had, you know, patches of trees that were growing along the edges of the field. Um, you, there still would have been a lot of monoculture and a lot of corn, uh, but it, it wouldn't be the entire landscape. And what we've now been able to do um, through... Um, human ingenu ingenuity is to literally, you know, completely clear out huge swaths of the, of the United States, plant nothing but corn or soy. Uh, we've gotten really, really good at weed control. Uh, and so we have pesticides that, you know, even if they don't harm the bees, I, I think there's some evidence that maybe some of the, the herbicides harm bees. But even beyond that, just they're really good at doing their job. And so um, when you put something out like Roundup, it kills all the weeds. And that's what bees depend on for food, right? The bee bees prefer weeds over corn or soy or anything like that. And so what we're seeing now with bees is just dramatic shifts in how we use and manage our farmlands. And then we're, of course, seeing decreases in, in natural habitats that bees used to depend on. And we, we literally have thousands of native species of bees in America. Most of them, the typical person has never heard of. Uh, and, and we're starting to, that, there's definitely worry that we're going to lose some of them. I see. Okay. So this, this is not just a, a, a pop science headline that I've been, I've been reading, but it, it, no. when you, <laughs> you, you said the, um, uh, the sort of disease outbreak within the, like the, the bees as livestock community, as opposed to like a mm -hmm. wild habitat. Um, one of the things that I saw your lab does is you look at disease transmission within social insects. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about that. But is any of this applicable to humans? I mean, are you able to, to, you know, artificially spread a disease within an ant colony and say, okay, this can tell us something about coronavirus or how does that work? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and what we find is of course that the, the ants are smarter at dealing with disease than we are really? <laughs> unsurprisingly after the, the year we just lived through. Um, yeah. So I do research on antibiotics and ants. And, uh, and so we, we look at, uh, we developed a new method to measure antibiotics that ants produce because people had, 
argued in the past that in order to be social, that ants and bees must have gotten really good at controlling disease. As they, they've been living, you know, humans, we've been living in cities for, you know, maybe 10,000 years, something like that. Um, ants have been living in highly dense, you know, city-like structures for at least 100 million years. And so they, they've got this down more, more than we do. And so we, we dug into this and we actually found that, yeah, like at least 50% of ant, ant species that we looked at produce very potent antibiotics. Um, and, and so one kind of reason for this that, you know, we write in grant proposals is, hey, we can maybe find new antibiotics that we can use in humans. Right. And, and that might be true. Um, and, and certainly we're surveying to find where, you know, others might look like what, what might be the best species to dig into further and try to dig into what compounds they produce. Uh, but what's actually more interesting to me about it is that ants have been producing antibiotics again for a hundred million years, and they've somehow done it in a way that they don't breed these antibiotic resistant superbugs, right? Like, that's okay. with, like MRSA, yeah, and C diff, and all of these things. Um, and so it's probably not just the compounds they produce; it's probably how they're using them. And the story in humans, of course, is that we overuse antibiotics. We use them everywhere. Um, I think we're sort of stepping back from that a little bit. I think now it's becoming widely known that, um, you know, we shouldn't give every kid with a, a sniffles um, antibiotics. They might have a virus and antibiotics don't help with that. Um, but yeah, so that's some of the stuff we're interested in now is digging into how ants actually use antibiotics and, and how they're doing this in a way that doesn't breed these superbugs. So you mentioned that they're ha they handled disease better than humans or, or like better than we've handled coronavirus. How so? Yeah. And so just like you mentioned, people, you can take an ant colony in the lab and infect them with a disease and see what happens. And there was a study that came out, I think a couple of years ago now, uh, where they had a group of ants and I think they had them all, they, they put like an RFID tag on each of the ants. They glued it on their backs so these these miniature little RFID tags. And they were able to track the colony, every member of the colony and how they interacted with each other. And what they were interested in studying was social networks. And so ants form social networks. Um, they're highly interactive. That's how they transmit information to each other. Um, that's how they recruit workers to help them if they need to rebuild a wall or forage for more food. Uh, and what this group of researchers did is they, they looked at how the social network formed under normal conditions. And then they took an ant and they infected her with a fungal pathogen, um, something that ants um, are, are very concerned about in their colonies. And they reintroduced her to the colony. And very quickly, the ants could, see, could find that she was sick. And some cases, they'll take ants. There's been other cases you know, where you find an ant that's sick and the ants will actually drag them out of the colony and you know, kind of either kill them or make them quarantine, basically, uh, which is probably good that we don't do that um, too, too commonly. Uh, I don't think we should mimic everything that ants do. But one of the really interesting things that happened in this study is that they found that when an infected individual came into the colony, it completely changed how ants form social networks. So instead of going out and interacting with everyone in the colony and having sort of a big ant party in the nest, what they did is they shrunk their social networks down to just a few individuals. Um, and it completely changed. And basically what we think they were doing is, is, is social distancing, right? So um, they, instead of, so basically now, um, because they're actor, interacting with small groups, 
Um, the disease can only spread between a small group of members and not spread to the whole colony that way. And so people have found similar stuff in bees as well. Uh, and so there's a lot of evidence that social insects have been doing social distancing for a long time. And like I said, I don't think there's any like anti-mask protest happening in a bee or anything. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they, they do tend to be um, rule followers to a fault. If there's anything you can say about ants, that that is um, that is true. Well, I mean, that's, that's definitely one of the, the stark contrasts, I suppose, between insects and humans is this sort of strong sense of uh, individuality and a strong sense of self that you find in a human being, where if someone's asking you to put a piece of cloth over your face, at, at least, you know, some people might take that as, a, as an affront to their being. And I don't agree with it. But I, that that instinct, I can see where it's coming from. Do you believe that, um, it, th this is kind of a, a hard question to answer, I suppose, but like, do, do these ants have any sense of self? I mean, w would they recognize I am, I am ant number one, I am, you know, whomever, or, or have they completely given up to the, the hive mind? No, there's absolutely cases where, uh, where ants in a colony have a sense of self. And a lot of these are in groups that haven't fully switched to this full eusociality. They're still eusocial, they're still eusocial species, but uh, we don't call them, when they, they pass a certain threshold, we call them a superorganism. And, and that's when really the sense of self is completely, uh, has completely gone away. And that's when the workers have evolved to where they can't lay eggs at all. So they, they basically lose their, their ovaries or they lose their mating apparatus. And there's no ability for them to actually reproduce and lay eggs. And when, when they shift to that, they, they become uh, honestly a super organism. So the whole colony is the organism. And you can think of the workers in the colony as individual cells, just like, you know, skin cells in your body um, that, you know, flake off and aren't directly contributing to your sense of self. It's you that are the individual. And so when we use the term superorganism, that's what we're talking about. A colony where the workers have completely given up reproduction and it really functions as one single unit. For my graduate work, I actually worked on an ant species that was on the cusp between, um, between like a, a pre-social ant, uh, what maybe existed a long time ago. Like I said, all, all ant species are social today, um, but there were probably some extinct species that, that um, were in that transition period. Um, and so I was looking at an ant that was, Pre, that was social, but they had not completely shifted to the superorganism. And what that meant is that they, they, the workers of the species still could reproduce. And so in this species, they definitely, so I, I would work with them in the lab and the, the workers actually fight with each other and they have a very strong sense of self. They have tournaments. And so the, this species, they have a queen initially, but when the queen dies, the workers battle each other in these ritualistic dominance tournaments where they, they do these behaviors like it, it's called antennal dueling. So they, they beat each other in the face with their antennae and they'll do this for weeks at a time um, until a small group of them raises to the top and then they get this, they, they express a pheromone scent that says, hey, we're the dominance. All the other members of the colony respect it and they kind of settle back down and then these individuals lead the colony. And so I think this is a case where these ants definitely have some some individualistic pride that they're fighting for. I, I don't know, pride is not the right word, but um, they're definitely trying to be the next egg layer. There's some benefit to that from an evolutionary standpoint. 
So we definitely see individuality um, at these early stages of sociality. But I think you're right that once you cross a certain threshold, that the individual no longer matters and it really is only about the colony. And humans, um, I think a lot of times we think of ourselves as the most social creatures, but we're not. So compared to an ant colony, we're, we're not very social at all. And as you're alluding to, I think that might be a good thing. <laughs> I don't think we want to be an ant colony. Yeah, I mean, on that same, um, I guess, on that same note, when you talk about like the super organism, is that um, is that truly what it is? Like, in other words, if there's like an ant that's uh, like a hundred feet away from another ant within this super organism. Like, are they able to communicate somehow, like, over that distance or? Um, it, yeah, in some body. way, yes. <laughs> yeah, so they don't have telepathy or anything like that, but they do have pheromones. And so they can communicate in that sense. They communicate through reinforcing pheromone trails and they leave information. So ants quite far away from a colony, if it's following a pheromone trail, is, is in direct contact with that colony. It's still sensing information. But, uh, but, you know, it's, it's not quite that they, you know, a super organism is not the same as a single organism and that, you know, everything is always connected. And that's actually kind of the cool advantage and these weird emergent properties that happen in ant colonies are all part of this ability of being, you know, you're an individual organism, but you can also break yourself apart into, you know, a million pieces and then reform again. Um, and so, so there's some, uh, yeah, from an evolutionary standpoint, they are definitely an individual. We think of them, we actually measure their fitness as the fitness of the colony and the reproductive output of the colony and no longer the individual at that point. But they still have the advantage that they, you know, they all have legs and they all have brains and they can all leave and go do their own things. And they come back and then share that information with the rest of the colony. And you mentioned also that um, this tournament style uh, battle um, it, was this referring to the, the Indian jumping ants that I, I saw a piece of news about from your lab where they can uh, grow and shrink their brains at will after becoming <laughs> a queen or something? Along, well, yeah. Was that the pop science version of, of your, your research or was that the real story? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, so this is a species, they're called the Indian jumping ant. They live in India as part of their name and they can jump. That's the other thing. So most ants can't jump. Um, this species, they actually, um, they have really small colonies. And like I said, they share a lot of like what we would call primitive characteristics that are, were probably in some of the, the original ant species. So they have small colonies. They are, they hunt live prey. So they walk through this, this leaf litter and they search for little insects and spiders. And when they see one, the workers kind of wait. And then when it gets close, they pounce almost like a leopard and they grab it and they sting it and paralyze it and then bring it back to the nest to, to feed the rest of the colony. Um, and so I worked on the species for my entire PhD, essentially. And they're a pretty charismatic species to work with. The workers are really large. They have really big eyes because they're visual hunters. So when you walk in the lab, they literally will watch you, <laughs> which is kind of strange. If you, I, I don't think most people have had the experience of an ant that you know looks up and looks them in the eye and kind of yeah. watches them. Um, and to me, it's kind of cute because I'm an ant scientist. I, I, I think it's unsettling to some people. Um, but yeah, yeah, so and, and what is interesting about them is that you know, we actually think that they already kind of passed the threshold to, to a super organism and that the workers lost the ability to mate. But at some point in their evolution, the workers re-evolved the ability to mate. And, and what they had lost was the structure where they store sperm. 
It's called the spermatheca. And so this species got the spermatheca back. And so the workers can mate with males. And when their queen dies, they, yeah, they do these dominance tournaments. And the ones that win activate their ovaries. They start laying eggs. But then they also just go through a whole suite of dramatic changes. Um, and so, you know, one is that normally their ovarian tissue in a worker is this kind of shriveled piece of useless cells kind of at the tip of the abdomen. Um, but once they win a tournament, their abdomen completely fills up with ovaries. It's just, you know, almost like a, a pregnant human. Um, they get bigger inside, at least. They, they don't look any different in, outside, but their, their abdomen is completely filled up with eggs. Um, they stop producing venom because they're never going to have to hunt for themselves again. All the workers will take care of them for the rest of their lives. Um, and uh, their, their lifespan actually dramatically changes. So their typical lifespan is six months for a worker in this, in this species. Um, but if they become reproductive, they can live up to five years. So it's a tenfold increase in lifespan, which is pretty wild. And then in the recent paper that I had that came out, uh, we documented changes that happen in the brain that are actually quite profound. And so once they win these tournaments, they, they essentially invest all of their energy and everything they have in their bodies into egg production. They become egg laying machines. And because brain tissue actually requires a lot of calories to maintain, these ants, they actually reduce their brain size by 25%. So they lose a quarter of their brain mass um, within a, a matter of weeks. And then what, we, what, what I had wondered and, and what the recent paper came out showed was that after they do this, could you actually take one of these, these ants and revert them back and could their brain, re brain regrow back to the size it once was? Uh, and we found that they can do that too. Um, so as soon as we reverted them back, uh, a few weeks later, we looked at their brains and their brains had returned. They, they, you know, they had grown back to, to their normal size. And so they're an interesting species uh, just for a lot of reasons, but they have you know, so much plasticity in terms of lifespan and their physiology and gene expression that they become a model to understand things like epigenetics. Uh, how so? Um, basically, like everything, everything in their bodies, you know, uh, can go back and forth. And so that's what epigenetics is. Like, of course, your DNA um, specifies traits in you, but you can't change your DNA over time. But epigenetics usually refers to all these things that sit on top of your chromosomes, um, things like histones and, and methyl groups, and they bind up certain genes and they can turn them on or turn them off. And so what we found in the Indian jumping ant is that they have the same mechanisms that regulate epigenetics as humans do for the most part. So they have these methylation groups and these histones um, that, that we have in our own cells. And like I said, because they're so flexible, you can, you know, make them become an egg layer, you can make them become a worker, you can look at how their brain capacity changes, you can look at all the genes that are associated with extending lifespan, um, and how they get turned on and off. And so we actually started collaborating with groups at medical schools for this. So we work at the NYU Medical School um, at UPenn. And now we've actually, we were the only lab in the United States who had these colonies when I started in grad school. By the time I finished, we'd spread them to, to um, basically biomedical labs all around the country that now, now use them as a model, kind of like people use fruit flies, um, but to a smaller degree, but to understand epigenetic traits in animals. That is so wild. I, I'm part of what I'm just thinking right now is throughout this entire conversation is these these ants are so small and like they don't live that long, right? I mean, what, what is the longest lifespan for an ant? So ants are a record; they're a world record holder and the longest lived insect. Um, well. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's fascinating because it's very plastic. 
So a, a typical worker ant, like I said, they live, you know, a matter of months, sometimes a matter of weeks. They, they don't have a long lifespan as an adult. Um, but when they become reproductive, uh, we see dramatic expansions in lifespan. And what's so interesting about it is, again, it has nothing to do with their DNA. What makes a queen or a worker, even when they look different and they grow so the queen's much larger, that all happens at the larval stage, depending, you know, if they get more food or better food, they grow bigger and they become a queen. Um, but it, it doesn't depend on their DNA for the most part. So you can think of, you know, a worker ant and a queen ant as identical when it comes to, comes to DNA. There's no, no major differences. Um, but, but so again, it's all epigenetic changes and, and flexible changes that have been targeted during development. But queens live much longer than workers do. And the oldest ant that has ever been documented lived to be 29 and a half years old. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and it wasn't like some crazy species that someone found in the Amazon. It's like the typical field ant that lives across Europe. And so it was basically like a scientist had a colony, he had a queen he collected at some point and it lived in his lab for 29 and a half years. And that's how we know how old that ant was because he literally had it in a box in his, in his lab. Um, based on some field estimates, people think that there's some termite queens and ant queens that can live up to 40 years. So pretty, pretty amazing differences in lifespan between queens and workers. Wow. 29 and a half years old. That is not what I expected. Okay. Yeah. I love that too. It's when you're a kid, you know, you get half years, you're like two and a half and three and a half. Yeah. And when you get really old, the half years come back. So the oldest human ever is also, she was 122 and a half years old. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's funny the the record holders get the half ages back again. Well, well I guess what I'm, the feeling I was trying to express is that these, they seem like to describe someone as being like an ant is to say that they're small and inconsequential. Like, has this changed the, having studied this in a really deep way, uh, social insects, ha has it given you like a different appreciation for life? Oh, I mean, yeah, certainly. And I, you know, I, I think I've always been fascinated by ants because, you know, like I said, with such a small brain and small bodies, they're capable of so many impressive things um, they've, a lot of things that we think of, you know, hallmarks of human civilization, like agriculture, um, ants invented like 40 million years before us. There's ants that farm, they farm fungus, um, and eat the fungus. And that's what they depend on. Um, there's ants that have evolved to raise livestock. And so they, their livestock typically is aphids or mealybugs, but they literally have like insect cows, the, the, the equivalent of an insect cow that they milk for honeydew. And that's how they feed their colonies. Um, so there's all these, you know, really sophisticated behaviors that we see in ants. And there's things that, again, that I, I think, honestly, we can learn from them. So I, I am really deeply, I deeply believe that we can study ants and understand how they deal with disease. And it can give us insights into things that we're doing wrong um, and things that we can improve. Uh, and, and so I think, yeah, and that's good for, for any of life to go into it humbly and, and not to think that, you know, humans are the pinnacle of achievement and we can look nowhere else for advice. Uh, I think it, it makes the world a richer place to know that the animals and plants that we share it with can teach us things if we, if we just sit and look at them. God, that's it. You, one of the other things you mentioned is, uh, about bees and 3d printing. Uh, mm. what is the connection there? 
Yeah. So right now I have funding from NASA. This is like a crazy thing for me to say, because I, I would have never thought this happened. I have funding from NASA to study bees in order to create lighter weight parts to go on rockets to fly to the moon, <laughs> which, is, which is just kind of ridiculous for me to think about. But basically I started working with a group of engineers who do 3D printing design. And lo and behold, the hexagon is one of the most commonly used materials in aerospace design. So an airplane, like the wings of an airplane, the fuselage, it all has honeycomb panels in it. Um, and it's because honeycomb is, is, is super strong uh, while being super light at the same time. And so that's why it's really important in aerospace where you need to have lightweight planes that you know, are more fuel efficient and can get in the air and all of that stuff. And an engineer that was working um, at Arizona State while I was there um, you know, came up to me and was like, hey, we're studying honeycomb and I heard you study bees. And we just got to talking and he had never seen an actual honeycomb before. And so I was like, yeah, I can go, we have colonies, let me go grab one for you. So we grabbed a piece of honeycomb and started talking and I didn't really think much was gonna come out of this because scientists have literally been studying honeycomb for 2000 years. There's like a Roman scholar, like, um, you know, 2000 years ago who postulated why bees build with hexagons. Um, and, he, and, he, and he guessed basically that the hexagon was the most efficient shape to, to divide up space while using the least amount of material. Um, so basically bees could use less wax to store their honey if they used a hexagon instead of if they used a square or a triangle or something like that. And, and this was later uh, mathematically proven. So now we know out of every shape imaginable, the hexagon is the most efficient at dividing up space into equal parts. And, and so we knew all this going into it. And I thought, you know, I don't know what we're going to learn about the hexagon, but it's kind of cool to go see this crazy 3D printing lab. So I went down there with the honeycomb and it turned out we, we like it, it far exceeded my expectations. So um, the engineer looked at the honeycomb and goes, you know, we built honeycomb for like through 3D printing and for, for actual you know, parts for rockets and stuff. Um, it's always with sharp angles. So it's hexagons, but they're, you know, these perfectly crisp, sharp angles. And he was like, you know, when you look at a bee colony, it's not as sharp as you would think. It's kind of rounded in the corners. It's not like a perfect circle, but they, but they add a little bit of material there. And, and he, he was like, I wonder if that has, you know, any function. And so to test that, he printed out a whole series of panels that had, you know, sharp corners and then increased rounding in the corners. And then he put them on a hydraulic press and then crushed them and then saw how they, how they failed. And, and lo and behold, it turns out that adding a little bit of rounding to the corners of a hexagon dramatically increases the strength to weight ratio of whatever product you make. And so, yeah, we, we were able to use that and pitch it to NASA and they funded us. And so now we've been working and digging into more things about honeycomb and trying to figure out ways we can build stronger, lighter weight aerospace parts. Wow. That, let me ask you something. I, I have... Uh, some friends who've gone on to grad school and they're, they're busy writing grants and all these kinds of things. Uh, when you talk about the similarities between um, uh, like humans and social insects or, or uh, the, the sort of the utilitarian uh, possibilities of, of your research, um, is part of it is this why you're interested in it or or is this part of like um sort of the hook to to be able to do this like do you see what i'm saying like yeah. is this the, I, the hook to get the grant or or how does i mean it, 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 maybe that's not a great question but you, you see no, what i'm saying 
it, no, it is a great question. I think it goes both ways. So for me, I mean, if you if it really came down to it, I, I've just been fascinated by ants a long time. And so, you know, I, I study this because I'm passionate about the organisms. And, uh, and so that's my driving force. I want to know more about them. But as I've, you know, gotten longer in my career, uh, I think early on, I would say we should just know knowledge for knowledge's sake. And, um, and who cares if there's any, any application? And, and sometimes I still feel that way, that I think we should just explore the world because you never really know what you're going to discover. Most of the big discoveries come from people who found something they weren't looking for. Um, and so I think that's always good to remember. We should always fund science in this country and even things that sound silly on their face and seem like they have no purpose. Those are the areas where you generally make the biggest innovations and where you make the biggest discoveries that then, you know, we, we depend on later on. Um, but I have become, you know, later in my career more interested in, um, well, how can we start doing that with some of the stuff we already know? So if you talk to a typical ant biologist, I mean, for years, everyone would tell you, oh yeah, ants produce antibiotics. Um, they're really good at it and they control disease and they're like masters at doing this. Um, and, uh, but that's kind of where it ends. Like ant biologists treat it like it's something that everybody in the world knows, but, but actually it's only ant biologists that know it. So that was one of my motivations. I was like, why are people, you know, we talk about this, but why does anybody else know about this? We should study this more. And so I, you know, I very uh, explicitly in that case, I, um, because I work at a university and, and we teach biology students, most biology students I teach, they're not going to be ant scientists or ecologists or anything else like I do. Um, I think it's like 80% of my students are all pre-health. So they're, they're planning to go to med school or PA school or be nurses or, or anything in the healthcare field. And so that project actually started because I was trying to get some, some students interested in working in my lab and thought, you know, maybe we can find something that's healthcare related. And people have been talking about um, antibiotics. So maybe we can study those. And so I did, I basically got a group of pre-health students. Some of them are in PA school or med school now, I think actually who started on this project. And, and we started digging into this. And I, and I actually, I find it thrilling now that it makes it easier to talk to the public to say, hey, there's these crazy things ants do. And look, they might help us. And, and people can really um, grab onto that. They understand it. And I think it builds more public support for academic research, like the kind of stuff that I do. And because it's, I'm funded by taxpayer dollars, I think it's my responsibility to make a case to the taxpayer that what I do is valuable and important. So yeah, I definitely move more into some of the applied sides. And I, and I don't think it's just, um, you know, a way to, um, to convince funding agencies to give us more money. Like I, I actually think that this is going to lead to innovation. And it's, for me personally, cool to see, like if I have a part that's based on a bee that ends up on a rocket that goes to the moon, yeah. um, you can bet that I'm going to be telling everybody I know that that happened. <laughs> that's, um, no, I, and I think that's a fair, I, and I, I'm, you know, the reason why I said maybe it's not a great question is it, it, it's almost, you know, breaking the fourth wall too much, but I, <laughs> it's something I'm, I'm curious about. So like, um, you know, we're almost at an hour here and, and I kind of want to, to wrap up. Um, but I do have, there's something I want to ask you and it's about climate change. Um, mm -hmm. What you, you said at the very beginning of this discussion that ants can probably outlast us after the, the last um, mass extinction event where the dinosaurs all dis disappeared um, you know, certainly cockroaches and things like that, or, or whatever insects at the time, I, I don't know the specifics, outlasted the dinosaurs. Um, 
what what's going to happen to all these these insects? Yeah, uh, so my, my postdoc work was actually focused mostly on climate change. So after I worked on the Indian jumping ant, uh, I went to a lab that had that had created. They were running um, what I think is still the largest climate manipulation study in a temperate forest. Um, and so what, 